must, we must, we must, we must, because there's still hundreds of millions of stories to tell. And, and I think we got a good hour to do it in. <laughs> i tell you what, there's a lot of stories coming, you know, uh, there's different variations of stories happening these days. Oh, yeah. And um, there's a lot, there's a lot to write about. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot of um, bear traps and potholes and sinkholes to avoid. Yeah. You were talking yep. about that just a minute ago before we went on the air. Uh, let's talk about that. What, are you, what were you thinking? Well, uh, I was, you know, part of it I, I was mentioning to the great, the great Ryan here. Is, is um, you know, there's a lot. I mean, we we're, we're still in the middle of this COVID-19 scenario, which, by the way, I, I think it's it's interesting that the 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 spin has shifted from constantly calling it Corolla to you know to COVID-19 now, because I I suspect either the beer company was having a problem or Corolla was just something about it didn't sound ominous enough. I don't Corno know. Uh, corona uh, beer stopped. Uh, production of its beer because that, the name was so identified. Wow. Wow. They may, they may have to rename, rebrand, we don't know. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't what was the challenge. No, no, but I was just saying, you know, I, I was just one of the things, but what I was thinking about is with all of the the heaviness, the, the, the anger, the frustration, the fear, the depression that is permeated our, our society, our global society at this point, and a lot of the media, um, a lot of people, you know, it's, it's rough. It's rough for us. And I was thinking that one of the things that I've been doing in some of my morning meditations or whatever, you know, take that word however you want, is looking at what I actually have to be thankful for. And I know this is, this is difficult for some people out there because they've suffered more from this than, 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 than I have or than some people that I know uh, even immediately. But I also know there are people going through some very hard times. And I'm thinking, I get to sit here this morning, this was this morning, but I get to sit here and I get to contemplate what we're going to be talking about on this mm -hmm. podcast that we get to do. I get to sit here with a cup of coffee on my desk and, and really get ready to talk about creativity and everything instead of scrounging around for something to eat this morning. And I, it, it just sort of rang in my head very loudly that we need to spend some time, as difficult as it may be for, for many of us, we need to spend some time acknowledging what we're grateful for, what we have to be thankful for. And, and that's, like I said, it's a challenge, I know, but it's a necessity because otherwise we're just going to keep slipping deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole that yeah, some of us may not be able to dig ourselves out of. Well, um, one of the things, and if you're, watching, if you're following um, Tell a Damn Story on Facebook, uh, you'll see links to it. But uh, every day or every, just about every day, I've been putting out a blog post to accent some experience or um, discovery or, you know, hidden gem that was on my shelf somewhere that uh, brings joy or reminds me. You know, the other day it was a sunny day and it reminded me that, uh, yeah, that's what we're fighting for, you know. Uh, this thing doesn't take our sun, sun, sunny days, you know, mm -hmm. we're taking them back. And, and if that means staying inside and all that sort of stuff, then that's what we're going to do. Um, one thing I'm not going to do, Alex, I'll tell you, uh, and over the last 48 hours, and I mentioned it to you just before the show, over the last 40 hours, about 
eight to 12 times, either a commercial or someone on a show or um, a text or even an email uh, in my other profession uh, mentioned this as the new normal. I patently <laughs> reject that. I strongly and absolutely reject that. This is not the new normal. The new normal suggests that this is the new way of life. No, no, that's defeat. Sorry, are you saying I'm, no? No, I'm saying no. no. Oh, no. You're saying no. Nay, I'm uh, nay yes. I say, I say the nay. Nay! That's what I say. Yes. yes. New normal? No, 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 no. This is a challenging time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Our new normal will be when we reclaim and we take care of this. And it might be two years before we get a vaccine that allows us to fully go back. You know, sure, sure, sure. But this thing right now with the masks and, uh, you know, lockdown and the uh, everyone hoard. Uh, uh, or TP. TP and all that sort of stuff. That's not normal, and it's not the new normal. We are not accepting that as our life. No, I certainly am not. And, you know, and it's, it's a funny thing, too, because I'm sure uh, some folks hearing our statement or hearing someone else make the same statement will go, you're just not being realistic. You're just not facing, you know, reality. And I'm saying, yeah, this is how we face this reality. Yeah. Uh, the neat thing by, about— By rejecting it. Yeah, know? Exactly. The neat thing about um, my life, and, and I'll, I'll speak for me, and Chris will either jump in or, or beat the crap out of me, whichever, is... Um, never. Yeah, never! Back I to say the nay. Yes. Oh, there we go. We're back to the nays again. Um, was, even when I was a kid, I, I enjoyed listening or talking to old people, you know, because they'd had some adventures, the way I lo looked at it. They'd had some adventures or seen some things I hadn't. And I always found that curious, right? But now that I am an old person, or certainly older, uh, yeah, and my bones are creaking. Um, it's the Geezer Show with Alex and Chris. Yeah. And the Geezer Show, lovely guy. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that I've noted is there are reasons why older people or people who are older than whoever is sitting and listening um, have certain very strong feelings. And it's because of certain experiences. You know, I grew up during the Cold War. I grew up you know, in, in my elementary school days. We were we went through that routine, getting under the desk, tucking your head between your knees, yeah. in your butt in the air in case of a nuclear attack. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, get under that wooden desk because yeah. you'll be Ancient, protected. Which, which has no sides to it, by the way. I just want to mention this. It has metal legs, but there's no shield, I, right? So the I only would add that at a certain point, yeah. the nuns just abandoned the under-the-desk stuff and just took us all out into the hall, and we all sat in the long hall because it would be easier to find the bodies. Yeah. <laughs> and then next to the room, they're supposed <laughs> the to be- The elephant never explained that to us, but yeah. you know. <laughs> well, for me, the thing, the thing that I always figured is like, you know, after that Holocaust, you know, decades later, archeologists digging through the ruins would find these, these ancient people in this very bizarre position and wonder like, what was what were they thinking this, at that point? This we believe was the civilization of the desk horse worshippers. Yes, yes, right, right. Who, who at every day <laughs> at twelve o'clock took their nap <coughs> with their butts in the air. It um, looks like they wanted to be snails. But, but my... the, reason, the reason I bring this up is you come through that, you come through the Cuban Missile Crisis, you come through so many things, 
and you begin to watch how human beings react to certain trying times. Mm -hmm. Now, you were told stories about stuff that happened before you got here, but when you lived through your own period of them, you lived through the Vietnam War and the protesting and the Kent State killings, and you lived, you lived through all that stuff, you have a sense of how the world works. Maybe it's just yeah. your perception or shared perception with your generation, but nevertheless, you know there's a cycle that we go through when crap hits the fan. And mm -hmm. I'm looking at this right now, and there's nothing normal about this. What we're doing, many of us are doing, is dealing with it. Yeah. I'm not even gonna say accepting. We are dealing with it as best yeah. we can. And I think that the strength in that, I think, again, I'm not ignoring fear, concerns, all of that, no. And for those of us who have friends or family members who are really sick and really, you know, there's prayer, there's meditation, there's a frustration that we can't be with them, literally can't go and sit next to them and hold their hands. That's all real. And that's what we're dealing with. That's where we find our power to deal with this, to get through this, and to be stronger coming out the other side. And if you don't believe that, don't note that, don't work towards that, and hug the folks that are with you and, and that you love, and tell them, tell them, if you don't do those things, then this garbage has beat you. And yeah. that ain't the way my family raised me. You know, that's, yeah. not, that's not the legacy I was handed down. The only thing I would add is that I was oh, no, impressed. Oh, no, just one thing. Go ahead. Um, I would add that I've been impressed with uh, the goddess's parents. Uh, they just, oh, lockdown, boom, they stayed in and they accepted all that sort of stuff. And I was trying to figure out why, because they have been very active. Um, you know, uh, my mother-in-law goes to mass every day or had up until this. And, uh, you know, they both went out shopping. They were the, the, the kind of Sicilians that go out for the fresh food every day, you know, on the fresh this, right? And, uh, but they just accepted it, boom, and adjusted. And I'm always trying to figure out why. And then I realized, well, they came into this world during the Depression, and they lived through World War II in Italian uh, um, territories. So they were on the wrong side of the war, and then they were switched over. I mean, they had... And then they had the rebuilding after the wall, war. Yeah. Yes, yeah, they saw things, uh, and they saw things much more uh, difficult than we did. And then they, you know, they um, emigrated to America, and they were on the lowest uh, run, rung of the ladder. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, as far as immigrants were concerned, you know, we've always been spectacular in our treatment of African Americans. <laughs> God bless America. Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah, hallelujah. Superb and over and above in all yeah. aspects, yes. Yeah. Um, Overwhelmed. But, you know, so my point is that when this happened, they had a lot to pull from. And again, I think it might be a, um, there are so many lessons in this. This is not, I don't say, oh, I'm glad it happened. Oh, I don't no, wish no. it happened, and I'm not looking for it to continue. But it's here, and the best we can do is take lessons from it. And watching how... Um, Seniors who remember tougher times adapt and, and work with it teaches us a lot, you know. Um, watching those who resist this, I still know people. First, you know, first degree of separation. That's how close I know these people who say that this is a hoax. Still now believe that somehow we got China and Italy and all the other countries to kill 
hundreds of their people or thousands of their people as part of an elaborate plan to make uh, Trump look bad, bad and hurt his election prospects. That's ridiculous. It is what it is. It's not Trump's fault that it showed up on his watch. How he chooses to react to it, well, I mean, people judge him on the merits of his actions. And that's it. That's it. You don't say it was, you know, um, because it happened in his presidency, uh, COVID-19 is his fault. No, that's ridiculous. Watch and how each of us react. We should be held responsible, you know? Uh, In my own town, uh, uh, one of the senior homes, uh, seven or nine people already dead. And, you know, do we search that out and find out who was the person who was infected who went in there? No, they locked it down, they cleaned it up and all that sort of stuff. And we pray for them and hope for them. And it just, you know, it brings it that close to home. This is serious and it is here, and let's take care of it, and because let's, that's let's where our strength is. Yeah. We can affect this. We can make a difference, you know? Uh, just like everyone's, oh, your, my, my one vote doesn't matter. Yeah, it does. Oh, yeah. Same yeah. way yeah. as yeah. your actions now matter. Yep. Staying home, or if you have to go out, gloves and a mask. This is the time, yes. And And, and I think there's... There's a lot of potential for the expression of the legendary, mythic American spirit. This get done, we can do this. And what I love, you know, I mentioned it last week. um, James McMurtry said it during one of his performances. You know, he says, this thing, it doesn't doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care about economics or religion or 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 race or uh, you know it just comes through everyone. So it's a great, it's a horrible thing, and a great opportunity for us to unite. Well, you know, if you were mentioning before, and by the way, folks, this is not the whole show. Once again, let me no, just, no, this is just our table of content. This is this we're, is we're being soon going to go into the positive content. Yeah, but I hope this is ultimately positive. Yeah, even yeah, this is this is positive. I was just going to say that one of the you'd mentioned before about this new norm thing, and and that's like a hashtag I don't want to buy into either. One of the ones that I do like, and I don't want it to become saccharine or or become just uh, advertising jargon for people, is because you know once you start seeing it on TV, you start seeing celebrities saying this. People sort of take this as okay, this is advertising. This is you know. But it's true. We are in this together. Right. That's that is the truth. You know, if it becomes a hashtag or a mantra or whatever, okay, fine. That's what it is. You want to wear it on your T-shirt? Beautiful. The reality is, it's still true. Yeah. This disease doesn't know. And I mentioned last week the Terry Thomas movie from the 1960s. Uh, this this disease does not recognize any of those borders. Oh. It, you know, we're one world. Whether any of the Conscious human beings want to admit that or not. So let's be in this together and let's yeah. take care of each other. Okay. That's, that's and I love that it it forces us to recognize that in this together and that unity doesn't mean a march on Washington. Doesn't mean um, you know all of us uh, walking with tiki torches or or goose stepping or you know yeah. know any of that baloney. It's us being us. You know, one of the greatest things about this country is that everybody gets to come here and and work and build their lives. 
you know. Uh, some get a little more leeway than others. Yeah, some get more pushback than others. Hope, yeah. Hopefully we can work on that, you know. Yeah, we but bet. Yeah, we bet. We, get to, we do get to define ourselves, and right now we're defining ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the choices we make, right, that defines ourselves. And that brings us, what a segue, yeah, to what we want to talk about today, which was performance and acting choices informing and influencing story, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I will say that the, the thing that motivated or inspired uh, this concept is uh, both of us had watched um, an interview. It's, 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 it's on YouTube, by the way. YouTube is good for things other than watching people blow up stuff in microwaves. Um, True. Yeah, right. Hard to believe, okay. But uh, Edward James Almos, who's uh, an actor that some of you may never have heard of, but is a man of great courage and great uh, vision and artistic talent and skill. And obviously very committed. And artistic discipline. Yeah, art, uh, committed to his artistry. I mean, very committed as a man, as a human being, as a Latino. Uh, he is very committed to his work and his word. And so years ago, back in the 80s, was it? Back in the 80s, there was a TV series called Miami Vice. And I know some people go, yeah, I got my DVD. Okay, anyway, you know, you think Don Johnson, you think um, uh, Michael Phillips, you know, whatever his first name was, something Michael Phillips. Uh, that was the, Phillip, that was Philip Philip Michael Thomas. There it is. Yeah, Philip Michael that, Thomas. That's it. Yeah. That was and, the era uh, of three names. There were a number right. of actors who hit the, hit the screen with the three names, you know. But anyway, Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas were these uh, really cool, super cool looking Miami Vice uh, cops. And it, you know, uh, what was it? Uh, the, the, the director, Michael Mann, was the Michael director. Mann, yeah. Was the director. Showrunner. Showrunner, yeah. Cool, you know, just pinks and blues and this. this like really the pastoral MTV. colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah pastoral. Yeah. It was MTV's, one of their first big shows and blah, 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 blah. Really just set a tone at that time for television. And it was just really, really, really cool. But anyway. Very, very visually arrested. Yeah. The first season of the show, uh, first, I think, four episodes or so, the police lieutenant that Crockett and Tubbs, the two characters, had to answer to was uh, played by Gregory Sierra, uh, a Hispanic uh, actor. And I mention that for a reason. Um, and for whatever reason, which I have not done research, but I have my suspicions, Gregory Sierra left the show. His character got killed off, but it was also the actor leaving the show. Right. And so um, um, uh, Edward James Almost was contacted by Michael Mann to come do the show. And it's worth watching the video clips of this interview on YouTube. It really is to, stay, to learn the process that he went through just to get the role or to, to take the role. Um, but what he, what he really talked about, what really grabbed me, and I mean, I've, I've known of this. I've had my moments, not as monumental as this, but I've had my moments of trying to decide where a character goes and, and what's truth of a character and blah, blah, blah. What really got to me was the process that he had to go through in creating his character and the things, the reasoning behind it, both artistic, professional, and personal. Right. And so and I think one of the things we will talk about today in terms of what is the written word for a script and what process and manipulation it goes through once it's in the hands of a director and actor and so forth. And the first thing I want to talk about with almost was, uh, I mean, we have to mention that a lot of that interview was 
him saying no to the role because he had this other um, artistic drive that he was afraid he wouldn't be able to do if he did this one. Well, and we'll that's, it's worth seeing. Because he was, he was pushing some independent projects right. that really had not been done at that time regarding Latino stories and, and actors. It's to his credit that he was able to do both and. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, it's worth mentioning, and I encourage everyone to watch that just to see, you know, an actor's discipline, an actor's patience, uh, passion, and, you know, uh, a commitment, right? Mm -hmm. But then he finally, you know, spoilers, uh, if you didn't know from, you know, 30 years ago, um, mm -hmm. well, uh, maybe 40 at this point, I don't know, um, he takes the role. And what really knocked me out was that he talks about his first um, his minutes first actions is, yeah, is, <laughs> is, is to is to watch and read. Mm -hmm. and that's what he did. You know, he wanted to see what the show was. And he noticed how beautifully shot it was, mm -hmm. how the color palette was so pronounced. Mm-hmm. How so everybody looked so good. I think it was Gucci that they were... Uh, yeah, I think so. I think he said Gucci, yeah. Right? No, so, no. I'll look it up. Right. Oh, please, please add that in the notes. Um, but it was uh, a very famous style. Saatchi. Versace. Versace. Excuse my face. I'm yeah. sorry, Versace family. Please forgive me. Yeah. Uh, as you can see, I am Versace. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Um, so he looks That's at all that acts. stuff and then he watches the actions, what these two leads do. And, uh, if you want to take over, let me know, but if not, oh. I will mention what he said. No, go ahead. Go, go, all go. Right. So he talks about watching, uh, Don Johnson and, uh, Philip Michael Thomas. Um, they have this, uh, communication right this shorthand with each other and whoever they're talking with if they're talking about they're talking to feds or they're talking about to state troopers or they're talking to you know commanding officers in their own command uh whenever they're told to do something they look at each other like hey, we'll do it our own way because we're rebels we're you know and, all that and it's our stuff. show <laughs> and uh edward james almost made a couple of decisions to give that uh, a different spin and to challenge on that. And the reason, and, uh, go ahead, is key too, is because basically what that read, now to an audience that reads, these guys are cool. You know, these guys got their own communication. They're cool. They know, because they're the rebels, they're the heroes. We're going to, this is cool. This is great. And he said, and again, spoilers, but you still watch it. You should hear his words. But he basically said, it's, it's a trope that, you've seen a, a thousand times or a hundred times in other shows. And he mentioned in particular, you know, I Spy with Culkin Cosby, but he mentioned Starsky and Hutch and a few other things. Right. He wasn't right. putting them down. He was simply saying, okay, just, this was done. Done. Yeah, we'll yeah, I recognize this thing, but this thing is dismissive right. of the authority figure <clears throat> they're talking to at the time. You mm -hmm. know, that's that thing, that's how that thing reads. And so, so he went and well, he has a couple of decisions that he makes to, you know, he was given control, developmental control of his character, mm -hmm. uh, which is a pretty cool thing to negotiate. God bless you almost. 
Especially um, and he wasn't a superstar at that time. No, but he got it. And and he looks at them and he looks at the, and the design team calls him up and says, we need your sizes. Your, your uh, measurements, yeah. And, and, and he gives the measurements and says, we have this idea and that idea. And he says, no. They wanted to put him in Versace as well. And he says, no. Do me a favor. Get me a very uh, modestly priced wash and wear suit in black and wash it and then don't iron it. Yep. And give me a thin black tie to go with the black suit. Whatever, whatever shirt color you, you want, that's right. fine. Just yeah. don't give me high end shirts. Make them very affordable, almost cheap. And they say, like, well, I said, he says, go ask, you know, Michael Mann. He gave me, and, and never hears from him again. And when he shows up, there's a suit and all that sort right. of stuff. And let's talk about that choice, right? Yeah. In a world where everyone is dressed to the nines and there's not a wrinkle to be seen. Anywhere. Right? <laughs> anywhere. Plus anywhere. no earth colors. No earth colors. Oh, yeah. And, and, and they're all... You know, it's beautifully shot. It looks like it helps redefine Miami, doesn't it? And for him to say, I'm not going to be that. I'm going to be really very, in a subtle way, the opposite of that. I am going to be the wrinkle in this smooth world. Mm -hmm. To make your, um, to make the clothing choices help define character and motivation and action, I mean, that's a lesson to learn. That's fantastic. Yeah. Because, and yeah. we've talked about this in other shows, which anybody who's new to the show, listen to the other shows. Uh, we talk Because you've got some time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just in case. And we've got 130 episodes for you. <laughs> 131, actually. <laughs> that's right. This is episode 132, ladies and gentlemen. So, actually, I'm sorry. This is, I think this is 133. Like I said, this is episode 133. I'm not sure what you heard. <laughs> but anyway, um, we've talked about character choices and knowing your character and building your character and because these things affect everything that goes on in the story, even if you don't talk about it directly. Yeah. But it makes a statement. And you know, like you're saying, he's not only the wrinkle in it, but in a world that's slick and smooth and clean and beautiful, he's grounded. He's right. He's closer to reality. He's the rock on which all this other stuff stands. Even though that's not the demand he's made. He's not saying <clears throat> show about me. Right. He's saying my character is serious about this. My character is grounded in the because you know Miami Vice. And, if you know the show. They, they a lot of what they dealt with was was mob or or gang or mm -hmm. or drug-related right. uh, crimes, killings, and things like that. It was a pretty world, but it was a violent, ugly world. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, and it, it also addresses the, well, they've dismissed everyone. They're not going to dismiss me, you know? And the, uh, the other thing I would point out is that in watching the interview, and, and when you do, you know, out there, um, maybe you pick up something that I missed, but um, I got the clear impression that these choices were not spelled out in the scripts. So he's bringing a different approach 
to what is established because he his his debut was episode four. So they had the pilot, and then episode one, two, three. So they had four hours of it already shot, and then he's going to come in and be this other thing. Um, he did the same thing with the set. They come into the set can where what's going to be. Oh, 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 yes, you can. Okay. Yes, you can. And so, here's Alex to tell you about the set. Yeah, I'm going to tell this damn story. Um, <laughs> again, like Chris set up, you know, and again, this is why we were so enthusiastic about this, because this is a creative process of actor in two. But yes, story and the world, because we talk about world creating, story and the world of Miami Vice had already existed in the pilot in three episodes. Relationships had already been established that far. Scripts had already been produced. As a matter of fact, Edward and James had to, once he accepted the role, which was all, all that stuff happened in a short period of time, he had to jump on a plane and fly down the very next day to hit the set running, okay? So we're talking immediacy. So all of this had been established, but he had creative control of his new character. So there's the things we talked about. He gets to the set, uh, the, the, the command headquarters of the, of the department that he's in, he's gonna be in control of. And again, remember, this is all established. So he says, it is, it is set designed to the max in terms of a lived in space with pipe uh, holders, with old pipes in it and papers and stacks of this. So, you know, the environment said, we have a ton of things that we're doing. We have been here. So it looks like some of them have been here for years and his office had all this stuff with books and everything, shelvings and, and papers on the desk stacked up and all this stuff in his office, let alone the outer office. And he said he gets to his office and he looks at all of this stuff just everywhere, you know, all this sign of work and lived in and, and, and confusion and chaos. And he goes to the set designer and again, he doesn't, doesn't shout, doesn't scream. But he says, can you do me, you know, do me a favor? He says, please, just take it all out. Just clear it all out. And, you know, set designer goes, huh? You know? Ooh, what? Hey, yeah, what? But, but you see, we, he says, no, no, I understand, you know, but please, but just just clear everything. You you want you, you want the desk? Clear? No, everything. Take everything out. And, and they like, actually try to fight him on it. Well, yeah, they and, certainly wrestled with him because they went to well, talk. They, they, went to, they, they went to man. Yeah, they, they went, went to. It took hours of, of shooting time, and yeah. then they came back and did what he asked. Yeah, right. <laughs> Clear everything out. And he asked for just one thing, aside from clearing anything up, just leave a bottle of aspirin on the desk, right? And, you know, my head immediately went, aspirin. Okay, okay, interesting choice. What, because, was, what was your interpretation? Well, my interpretation is, you know, he is already, his character is already intense, is already carrying a load, is already in his own way somehow in in a stress mode or some mode where, yeah, there's tension that he's dealing with. And at some point he may need this. I don't think he grabs it. I don't think he uh, I have a different interpretation. Fine, what do you have? He was gonna be their headache. Interesting. That yeah. could be, that could be, it could, it could go either way. I took yeah, it Yeah, and that's one, you know, that's one of the fun things of a conversation yeah. like this. Yeah, but yeah. I like that. But anyway, so he gets the whole room cleared and, and that's, his his office now. That's the space. And when you think and the door, talk about the door. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to get there, but I'm just saying when you think about it in the context, he is the new lieutenant. Right. 
he is an unknown factor. So yeah, it makes sense that he, coming to this space as the character, whatever his stuff is going to be, he's going to bring in, but there shouldn't be anything there from the past unless you're making an episode about that. So he makes this decision right. And then he has his scene, because again, this is all, he hits the ground running. He gets a couple of quick rehearsals with Don Johnson because the first scene he's going to shoot is not his arrival at a, at a crime scene, but his, his arrival... Actually, actually, wait a second. Actually, the first scene he did shoot was uh, an arrival at a crime scene. I thought, he said, I thought he said in the interview he hadn't shot that yet. No, no. The, his, his arrival he hadn't shot yet. His first shot was at a crime scene. With, with the one Philip with Thomas... Thomas Philip Michael Thomas came up to him. Yeah, don't don't tell that story. Wait, tell that story when when after I finish this because it's in the order. So tell that one right after I finish this. This is the order. I'm 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 almost positive he shot that exterior first. No, I I, then it was this. I hear what you. Go ahead, tell the story. What I meant. So well, I don't have the exact line that he said, but um, Philip, you know, he had been. Watching dismiss and like walk everywhere, um, and no one challenged him. So uh, Philip Michael Thomas comes up and says whatever his line is, and instead of saying the line that was in the script, uh, Edward James almost says something to the effect of, "Don't just approach me and think you can talk to me." And Philip Michael Thomas has this yeah. big shock on his face. And the director says, cut, we got what we need. Yeah. So they kept that in, like that shock, like slap, you know, it was, uh, was more almost slapped him in the face. It, it was more offensive than that, even. Uh, get the line. It, get was, the line. it was, the, the setup was they were at a crime scene. Crockett, the, the um, Don Johnson character, was, was walking around all upset because the body they found was his old high school girlfriend. Right. And she's been wiped out and it's brutal. And so uh, Thomas walks up to Edward James almost Tubbs. to the lieutenant within the scene. Yeah, Tubbs walks up to the lieutenant and basically steps really close to him and says, you know, look, this is his old girlfriend here, blah, 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 blah. So you got to cut him some slack. So, you know, just be cool, right? And, and he's, those are the lines in the script, and they're filming. And Edward James almost is standing there, and he says, like, the guy is, like, really almost in his face delivering the lines. And so he just lets Thomas finish his line, and he turns to him and says, don't ever step into my face like that again. That's what it was, <laughs> that, yes, yes, yes. That's, that's, and and that's, Thomas, you know, the character Tubbs is shocked, and they keep it. Again, uh, taking those chances and those risks, not that you should disrespect the script, because I'm always serve the script, serve the script, serve the script, but for having to establish himself as a new character, you know, um, and wanting to get a character that they were going to be forced to respect. Mm-hmm. These changes do it. And then we talked about the office and he cleared out the office. And that's when Crockett was supposed to come in. Yep. And Crockett and almost closes the door and talk to us about that. So, again, Edward James sitting at his desk, bottle of aspirin, cleared office space on it. And Crockett, Don Johnson's character, walks in telling him that, you know, this is the case we're on, this is a, is a folder in his hand with, the, with the, uh, the, the info and a photograph and all this, and they do the scene, they do the scene, I think he said once or twice they rehearse it, and then he goes out and he says, um, he closes the door, he wants to close the door. 
And again, the way you, again, everybody, please, you get the chance, go to YouTube, look up this, hear his words as he described yeah, it. So much better. So much better. Yeah, one of the things that impressed me about his, his interview and how he talked about this is, again, I wasn't there. We weren't there. But there's mm -hmm. a sense of his professionalism and his, his, it's not him coming from ego. It's not him saying, right. you know, I'm new, I'm the star, I'm, I'm all that. It's him saying, this is about the work and the character. This is character to character. This is not actor to actor or person to person. And so when, well, when, when, when Crockett comes in and does the scene, and they do the rehearsal and everything, and Edward James wants to close the door. He says, you know, no, I'd like to have the door closed. And John Johnson says, no, 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 we, we, we have the doors open. That's the way we do it here. You know, we just walk in and everything. He said, no, I hear you and everything. But he goes, he, the pushback is, just for the character, I, I want to have the door closed. And Don Johnson doesn't want to hear this. And he goes, right. oh, really? And again, I'm paraphrasing. Oh, really? Okay, fine. We'll see. But, and he walks away. He walks off set. So at least one of those involved, not to give anyone a hard time, but at least one of those involved had a little bit of ego to him. But I'm going to leave, you know. Yeah, I'm not going to say nothing about that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, supposedly for two hours... There's no Don Johnson on the set, and Edward James is on the set. He doesn't go to his trailer, and he's on the set waiting to see what's going to happen. And he's, as he put it, he said, this is, this is, you know, I don't know what, what's going to happen because this is an expensive show to shoot. Mm -hmm. And two hours, for just two hours to go by with no work being done, this is, this is thousands upon thousands of dollars here, right? So eventually, Johnson comes back. They, 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 they do the scene. He closed, the door closed. I'm sorry. Edward James closes the door. They're going to do the scene. Action. Don Johnson pushes the door open. The door slams against the file cabinet. He delivers his lines in such a sort of a, a gruff way. I won't say, you know, an angry way, but it's a gruff, aggressive kind of manner that he has, which is obviously a reflection of the tension that's been established Edward mm -hmm. Jinks talks about how he deals with that. And in dealing with that new interaction causes his character to take a physical posture that becomes a defining posture for his character for, I think, the rest of that season, if not the rest of his time on the series. Now, now let's talk for a minute about the choices he doesn't make. Exactly. Go ahead. He doesn't get up into Johnson's face. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't tell him, get out of my office and knock on the door. None of that. Mm -mm. What does he do instead? Instead of facing Crockett, the character, instead of facing him and as this stuff is being dealt and, and Crockett throws the file onto his desk, he turns to his left, giving Crockett his right profile and never looks at him directly. And he reaches over, takes the folder off his desk, and looks at the folder in front of him, again, giving Crockett his profile, not looking at him. So, mm -hmm. in effect, Crockett cannot dismiss the lieutenant because the lieutenant has not opened himself for dismissal. In, in a way, he dismissed Crockett and eventually Tubbs, too, uh, first. He and, and the, he's not going to stand for this kind of behavior. Yeah, and, and, and the thing of it is, it's, it's about the, 
the, the moment becomes about some sort of respect, right? The moment becomes about, it's not a challenge. I'm going to look you in the eye hard on, you know, hard on, and you're going to look me. It's not about, you know, who can piss higher on the tree. It's about, I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of business. You do have something to say to me. I'm going to look at the evidence I have to look at. I'll make a call on that. You can leave, you know, or our dialogue is over. You know. Yeah, he's not he's not going to embrace, nor is he going to push back, which is both of those things they seem to have been used to, when both of those would have been cliches. At a certain point uh, in subsequent scenes, he went to a wall, mm-hmm. and he was looking out of the window. And they said, well, could you turn around so we can get your shot? And he's like, what do you mean, shot? This is, we want to shoot your face. No, nah, just shoot the back. Shoot my back. I'll shoot my back for a while. And the idea was he's not going to embrace their behavior right? until they embrace who he is and how they have to deal with him. And, and I, I watched the, um, I wasn't, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't a fan of the show in that I caught every episode. I enjoyed the show when I watched it. And mm-hmm. I remember a number of episodes, not verbatim, but I just remember impressions of certain episodes and his character. And his character always seemed lethal without mm-hmm. ever so hard, without ever any, you know, huge explosions. But it was something about his character that said, this guy is more dangerous than he appears to be. And it was partly because of the way he played that character. He was efficient and there was something that said, wow, you know, what's his background? Because this guy, there's some stuff going on. And of course, there was an episode where we eventually get a peek into his character's background, and he is deadly. And it's a thing like I remember the I remember scenes from the episode. So, you know, at some point now, because I've now seen Edward's interview, and I know some of his other work, I, I now feel especially Stand and Deliver. I love that film. But you know, right. now I've got to go and and somehow get track down the Miami by at least four, the first yeah, season. Yeah. I want to watch the yeah. the evolution yeah. of his character in that series, yeah. in the consciously now. Now, and we have to be careful because there's a um, this is a case where Edward James almost studied the source material and carefully chose, as a gifted professional that he is ways to contribute to making the product better. Mm-hmm. There are many less gifted actors. <laughs> you are such a politician in that respect. You're so kind. Who, <laughs> who what a word chew up the scenery, right? And and make everything about themselves. Yeah. You know, yep. the best the best thing to do is always, always, always serve, serve the story. Serve the story. Serve the story. Um, well, I, I'm not Edward James almost, uh, but I've had a couple of opportunities to serve the story, right? Uh, I've done a couple of independent films and, uh, one that is available, you can find it on Facebook places and you can find it pr- pr- pretty much for free in a lot of different places. It's called Lock, Load, Love, and it's a vignette style movie about, the hazards of online dating, right? We wrote the craziest dates, so it was a comedy. Most of you know, most of it was comedy. Mm-hmm. And they asked me to, uh, you know, I'm a writer who will act occasionally, right? 
So I produced a lot of it was shot in my house because they had zero budget, you know. Um, I, well, I that had comes our way, doesn't it? Yeah. Huh? Yeah, we. I said a lot of that comes our way. You're seldom oh, approached yeah. by the people with like you know fat wallets. No, no, no. So, uh, you know, if I had to hold the boom mic, fine. If I had to co-write a script, you know, or a vignette or whatever, you know. But at this one point, there's there is one where we wanted to turn the tables on the lead actress. You know, we'd follow two people, a guy and a girl, on these online dating, and each date exploded. It was terrible. So they're getting closer to what will eventually make them cross tracks, right? Um, and I, I you know, spoke with the director and executive producer and everybody and, and pitched this idea of re reversing the, the um, comedy. So we wrote a bit. Now, she had gone to dates where everything was double entendres or there was, you know, handsy or the person turned out to be gay and, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just the dates didn't work out. So she shows, or she's at this date waiting and uh, I show up. And I, as gray as I am now, I had grayed myself so I was even older looking than I am now. And... Um, I approach, and she is so bitter from her experiences by now that she treats me completely with sarcasm. And I asked if I said, uh, you're the date? You don't look anything like the picture in the eye. I said, I'm actually the date's father. Uh, can I sit and talk to you? And uh, she's like, oh, sure, let's see how this is. And kind of treats me like I'm some kind of creep trying to sneak in on my own son's date. Uh, and then I launched into this monologue um, about what would have been the perfect catch this guy who was thoughtful to everybody and uh something horrible happened to him and in his final hours with his father as he was dying he had this whole list of please take care of these things uh and a couple of them included people and one was her he did not want her to have to sit there like she was stood up. Uh -huh. So while I was explaining this and practicing this, I decided that I was going to really push my emotions. So having not told them, I guess I forgot to tell them. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, uh, and clearly they didn't expect, but I began to cry during this monologue. And... Um, being the consummate actress that she is, she played with it with her lines and all that sort of stuff. And it became this, it was a, like kind of a black comedy where her understandable defensiveness made her look like an ass because she was being defensive to the nicest person or the father of the nicest person ever in existence, right? And, um, I was, I was able to bring the tears each time because the material was such. Mm -hmm. But it wound up pulling the, um, the movie in the direction it had to go. It had to get, she, we had to open her back up to possibility, you know, because the previous scenes had closed her off, you know. Um, so that kind of thing worked out. But if I had overplayed it, even, you know, boo-hoo-hoo or a little louder or cracked my voice or whatever, it would have destroyed it. And I'm not a great actor, you know? 
but every once in a while, you, if you're following the material and looking at the material, you can make a choice like that. And I say that as, you know, in choose wisely rather than and, and towards the script rather than towards yourself. I would also, as you should do in all in, in, in all creative efforts. Right. I would also say because you know you've had your time uh, under the footlights and and yeah. so have I, and uh, one of the things that you really do want to do <clears throat> is find the truth of the moment, whether you're playing comedy or drama or whatever. What is the truth? And the other thing that you do, especially in scenes where the the sincerity is necessary is find some sincerity in you that you can share through this particular character. Mm -hmm. When people fake laughter, it's the easiest thing to point out, when people fake laughter, most folks can hear that. They, they get it. No, what are you doing? You're pushing. It's not real. It's not genuine. Yeah. It's the same thing with other emotions. You know, it's easiest to fake anger, but even that, you know, less than great actors can go over the top of that fairly easily. So part of even it, great actors can go over the top. We've seen, you know, God bless them. We've seen Pacino scream his way through a scene every once in a while. Yeah, but see, know? I blocked that until you brought that up. But anyway, <laughs> but the thing, the thing of it is, is what <clears throat> it was find the truth of the moment and trying to bring something there that that you, the actor, can connect to, that that serves the story and the words, because nobody in this podcast is ever going to dis. The writing experience. The writing experience. <laughs> no. I tell my students, no matter what the directors, actors, producers, executive producers tell you, it starts with your script. Right. You know, that's that's where you know they may change it, you know, fifty percent. But if they got no story to start with, no script that's even worth talking about, it's a whole. It's everybody's gonna improv their way through eighty-five minutes. And, so, and one of the, to bring it back to Edward James almost you know, one of the reasons why um, those that interview is so compelling is that he's always talking about the work with respect and mm -hmm. in taking that work seriously and as himself you know as his role his character being a new lieutenant there and thinking seriously about what would what would that be what would you know even to the what would be in the room, you know, he he plays the truth and he asks the set designers to play the truth and he asks, you know, um, the costume designers too, yeah, yeah, even that. Well, that I think was a little bit of an innovation that he saw a little vision for the the character that they may not have shared, but they, you know, thank God, man said give, you know, had the respect for the performer to give him yeah. that freedom. But again, it's about contributing to you know telling the story as good as you can tell that damn story you know not to end the episode you keep talking if you want but uh <laughs> you know it 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 ties together yeah uh, and the oh. contri contributions always have to be about the work not about the self i i i have two quick um acting experiences my own very short ones i'll mention uh, i'll start with the the simpler one of the two, uh, children's theater. Um, back in my earlier acting days, I, I, I by the way, folks, I, I was an actor or pursuing acting, film and theater and all that for about 15, a little over 15 years. Uh, I still dabble, but that was like my, my, my goal, my major goal for a number of years. And part of those early days was doing children's theater. 
And to me, you know, if you're doing you're doing some sort of uh, uh, fairy tale or you're doing uh, some sort of kids uh, slice of life story, whatever, the fact that your audience are children doesn't mean that you play less. Doesn't mean that you give less in your performance. You give a hundred percent because that's your audience, and you're there just to give them a good time and give them a good story and a good performance. Mm -hmm. So I was I was in this show. I don't remember. I think it was Robin Hood, some sort of interesting take on Robin Hood for kids. And I played Little John because I'm not. And I, yeah, you don't want to see me in tights. I mean, this is just the way I feel about it. But I was wearing them anyway. I don't know, everybody. We could, you know, you could write in and vote. This yeah, could happen. Yeah, <laughs> it ain't gonna happen. No. Anyway, uh, but they're not gonna write in and ask him. Be I'm not gonna put him on. But anyway, the team challenge. Can we get Alex in? Maybe. Yeah, I won't. But anyway, um, I'm in. The, you know, I go out. I do my scene, and you know, I got kids laughing. And this is a big theater. I had kids laughing. And I come back, and another actor goes out and does his scene. Comes back, and he starts basically mumbling expletives under his breath. You know about those damn kids. You know they're talking. They're doing this. They're doing that. And I, I, I wanted to bite my tongue because the guy was going out there and, and giving half a performance. He was, he was, you know, you could tell he wasn't into it. And so he, he goes out and he, the same thing happens in another one of his scenes. He comes out bitching, bitching about it. <coughs> and I finally said, I said, you know, what, what's the problem? He said, well, they're talking. I said, uh, why is it making you mad? Because I know what I'm thinking at that point. He said, well, because they're not paying attention to me. I said, well, do you enjoy doing this? And he said, no, this is just a kid show. And I said, that's the problem. Kids know when you fake it. Kids, their emotions are, are right out there. If you don't grab their attention and entertain them or engage them, they don't feel compelled to be respectful. You got to go out there and give that audience a full show. Otherwise, they're going to give the show they want to see. And that's, that's what's happening. And so that was, that was one of those, those little lessons in my early life to me was I had believed it, had never verbalized it. You do not half step on a performance, no matter what the size of the audience or whatever. You play full. You play the characters to the best of your ability. You give it your all, no matter what. But the role. So I think be, that be that, kind to your cast, cast, though. Excuse me. Be kind to your cast, though. Your castmates. Uh, way long time ago, uh, the late Rich Ramirez, great uh, stand-up comic, uh, did some acting on TV and movies as well. Um, but he was did, did some. Uh, community theater for the kids mm -hmm. in multiple streets and he was doing west side story uh and he needed me to fill in a couple of the uh, adult roles so okay sure fine well you know as a favor whatever um and you remember the scene in uh, west side story when there's the big dance the big dance scene yeah yeah and the guy comes in he's like the uh the host of the MC. right and he's always played the last right what's his name it's chaperone isn't he like the chaperone, yeah, chaperone whatever yeah, he was right. Uh, but he's always played it for laughs. So um, I was a reporter in those days, running all around. So I don't know if I was at the dress rehearsal or whatever, but I got there and uh, it was, I guess, the opening night or whatever. And I had asked one glass and the worst plaid that they had. So uh, they had some plaid stuff and I bought, you know, put on some mismatching plaid. And I got a, I had a Band-Aid, and I put that on the center of the glasses, you know, horn rims. And then greased my hair and put it, you know, on the sideways and, you know, was whatever I could do to look goofier than I usually do. So the uh, cue comes, and I come out, 
and I do a um, you know one of the comic stumbles and that kind of stuff, and then I push the, the glasses back up and do my line, and it kills. But Rich got, was pissed at me backstage when I came back up. He says, "Yeah, you were fantastic, but you knocked every actor out of character." And it was a you know it was a strong lesson for me that you know. If if you if you're gonna go for that big of a moment and if it's you know gonna play up the comedy, make sure that the kids have seen it or the actors, the cast members have seen it enough so that they're not amused. Oh, you know? yeah. So, well, no, that's that's, uh, that's, that's but, uh, He was right. I took my lumps yeah. on that, but uh, but that's, the, that's that's different from actors feeling that because this is a small audience or because they're performing for children or the blind or whatever the heck right. may be in there, they don't have to give it their all. That's that's what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. That's professionalism. It, it does. It goes back to the professionalism, and it goes back to you know one of the one of the things we see in the almost interview is that his professionalism is tied to it's not about me, it's about the work, it's about right. the project. And even though I was trying to fulfill that moment completely for the project, uh, you have to learn. All right, some of the things you have to test out so they see it. You know. Um, so, and, and what you're saying with the example you're giving is that those who don't think about the project, they think about themselves. Yeah. That's where you, that's where you lose that magical balance, you that's know, right. that, and, that the thing that makes the story live and breathe. And then the other, serving the story. The other quickie is, um, I was in Titus Andronicus. And uh, believe me, that's 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 different. another comedy, right? Yeah, another great comedy. Right? <laughs> and I played this extremely despicable character. I mean, extremely despicable. Just everything morally wrong one could do, this person did. And and trust me, folks, you don't know me, but that ain't me. So I mean, well, typecasting, you know, eh? Yeah, right. Yeah, really. Yes. <laughs> On my list of despicables, yeah. <laughs> have any minions or, or or minions either? So. Um, <laughs> I did this, you know, I did the role and I'm, you know, and working in preparation for the role, there's a lot of things you do in your head to make it, okay, at least for me, to make it okay for me to enjoy the really insidious and despicable things my character is doing on that stage. Because he revels in his ability to manipulate that kind of pain and, 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 and horror into other people's lives. This is his thing, right? And so, again, you got to be genuine. So, obviously, there's no part of me that revels in that kind of stuff. So, the things that I was pulling on to make those moments genuine were personal things to me that were obviously, in my life experience, benevolent. But, you know, so you're seeing my reaction to benevolent thoughts as I'm doing despicable things. But I come off the stage, uh, I think it was like the second or third performance uh, night. And, you know, there's uh, what they call the Jordan line where the audience gets to wait for you out in the lobby and, and, throw mm -hmm. and so I come out and there's these two ladies waiting and I'm figuring they're waiting to talk to one of the women in the show or whatever. And the first young lady stops me, I, you know, and when I say young lady, you know, maybe in their, their late 20s, early 30s. And she says, she says, I really want to tell you, I really enjoyed your performance, and everything. Her friend is standing next to her and that lady looks like she wants to cut my throat with a dull knife. You know, she is, the daggers are coming from her, like, you know, any number of reasons. I'm going, wow, what's yeah. up, you know? You guys, the washroom's just down the hall. Yeah. But her friend is, is you know, going on about, she, she enjoys this. And now, and she turns to her friend, she goes, go ahead, tell him, tell him, tell him, right? 
<laughs> and I said, okay, what's she going to say, right? And she, the lady says to me, through gritted teeth, she goes, I hated your character so much that in the play, I wanted them to kill your child. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a big you. compliment. Thank you. And she looks, she's like shocked now. <laughs> I said, thank you. That means I did my job. Yeah. And that's yeah. what that meant to me. And so sometimes you can, your character can, can look like or do things that really might push the audience in this, in this direction where they want to they rip your lungs out. But if it and serves that, you know. a story, if it serves a story, if it pulls them into that story and that character that you're playing is supposed to be that, it's great. It's great. And yeah. so I think, that, I think that Edward took the right risk, but he took risk and it paid yeah. off. I, uh, I did uh, Neil Simon's uh, proposal. A proposal, and I was uh, this guy from Brooklyn. By the way, Neil that's Lavici, a right? play, folks. That's not he proposed to Neil. Okay. No, it's it one of his great plays. Nothing um, wrong with that. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that uh, uh, he's known better for, but it's a good right. Play. You know. And I was Vinny Bavese, this guy from Brooklyn. You know, so you do the Brooklyn thing and all that sort of stuff. It's easy enough for me to do because uh, you know, grew up in New York City. You know these guys. You know what I'm talking about. I so know. that's what it is. So the whole play, that's what I'm talking about. Like. Vinny Bavese, right? So, uh, so afterwards, in this, you know, where the audience where'd you just meets, say? meets the cat. <laughs> well, hey, what it is, what's the matter? You got to pay anyway, attention. You're saying. Forget about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So, um, we come out afterwards, and and, and the uh, the members of this theater or whatever, and they want to meet the cast and all that stuff. And um, I always get very quiet and reserved at this point. So, you know, people are saying stuff, and I said, oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And this one old lady was, I'm sorry, you know, did I do something wrong? She says, where's your accent? Where's your Brooklyn accent? I said, that's just, that's, that's Vinny's accent. That's not mine. Like that and she's like, oh, I'm so disappointed. I thought you were from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know what? God, I'll take it as a compliment and all that Absolutely. sort of stuff. But I got off light. Uh, Edith, I forget her last name. Uh, the one who did The Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, in the Wizard of Oz, kids were throwing stuff at her for decades. Afterwards. Oh yeah, you know yeah. she would she did her role so well that kids hated her for generations. Yeah. So yep. I'll take one old lady instead of that. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Yep. And then she actually <laughs> she eventually got to do in her later career she got to do I think it was a Maxwell House coffee commercial, right. and mm -hmm. people were reacting to that. Is that the witch still drinks mm -hmm. coffee? I'm so stop. Yeah. yeah, and and you know you've mentioned before even on the show actually. Uh, that Mr. Rogers had her on to try and help, and so you know, that was a role. And this is this is Miss Edith, you know, and all that try and help her out a little bit. But yeah, no, soap but opera it all comes through the that too. Right? A lot of soap opera actors go through that because people live with them five days a week for sure. sometimes decades mm -hmm. in this one role. And so, as far as the world on this side of the screen is concerned, that's who you really are. That's all yeah, they. Yeah, yeah. That's all I know, man. The job was dangerous when you took it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, go check out Edward. Edward James almost on YouTube. Worth watching. Um, like I said, I'm going to go find Miami Vice season one. There I got you go. And, and especially watch him and then watch some of the episodes and you can watch his choices and watch how they react. That's good stuff. And it, it's another way to tell the damn story. And, and which hopefully it's a good distraction. Give you something to watch this week.
Yeah. So anyway, folks, uh, thank you for listening, staying on board. Uh, I hope, by the way, um, uh, the fan who had written into us uh, over a week ago about improv choices for storytelling, you know, because we did that two, two episodes ago. Um, I, I put it, I put that improv at the beginning of last week's episode as a little extra because we forgot to do it during the show. I hope you got to hear it. I hope you, you liked it. Please uh, get back. If you didn't like it, tell me that too. But either way, you know, I didn't want you to feel forgotten because we really appreciate everybody who writes it in comments. We really, 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 really do. Yeah, that's fun stuff. Yeah. Okay, brother. As always. All right, bro. I'll see you. Have a, good, have a week. Yes, have a good week. Everybody, you do the same. Peace. Yeah. Peace.